tonight. At this global event, this universal stage, whose storied past is rivaled only by the promise of an even bigger future. Millions will watch from around the world, waiting, anticipating for that next breathtaking moment. The stage is set. The time is now. History is at hand. This is WrestleMania. My name is Sal, and I am your host as we journey through the past to relive, rewatch, and review the spectacle known as WrestleMania. Tis the season as we get ever closer to the current day WrestleMania, WrestleMania 34, live from the Superdome in New Orleans, Louisiana. But tonight on the show, we will journey back to 1997, March 23rd to be specific and discuss WrestleMania 13 live from Chicago-ish, Illinois. Well, it is the Rosemont. Rosemont, Illinois is a suburb of the great city of Chicago, and the Rosemont Horizon is one of the loudest wrestling venues of all time. Often cited as a personal favorite of many WWE legends over the years, the name might have changed to the Allstate Arena, but history in this venue remains untouchable. Now, before we venture into the past, I'd like to take a moment to thank Troy for appearing on our last show when we discussed WrestleMania 12. I had a great time going back and seeing Shawn Michaels become the man in the WWF, and surely I look forward to seeing HBK in the main event of tonight's WrestleMania. What? What's that? He won't be in the main event. He'll be at the main event. Well, that's kind of fucking dumb. But I promise you, we'll go through exactly why he wasn't coming up later. But first, we start with another black and white opening video with the voiceover guy hyping the event. This particular one highlights the blood feud between Bret Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin, as well as the gang war between the Nation of Domination and Ahmed Johnson tonight, backed up by Chicago's own Legion of Doom. Really well done video, and I feel like these are getting better and better every year. And I look forward to them. They, they tend to tell a good story setting up the night. Now, fireworks fill the arena as the broadcast shows us the live crowd for the first time. And a lot of fireworks fill the arena. And because it's 1997, the arena is also filled with signs and posters. Way more than what we have seen generally on this podcast. Now recently, and by the time this airs, it will already be released, I appeared as a guest on the Raw Attitude Podcast with our friend in Episode 7 co-host, Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. And on that show, they always make note of notable signs brought to the show and held up by fans that get on camera. So, in homage to that show, and it's homage, I'm not stealing, I will share some of the notable signs I noticed here tonight. One of the first signs that makes camera is a sign that says, Brett who? Ouch. <laughs> We have a BWO sign, of course, for anybody who's familiar with the Blue World Order. Uh, Vince Rules, you'll seldom see that sign going forward. A Bow to the Master sign in March of 1997, a good six months before DX would form and their music would hit. So, either Time Traveler, or it's an homage to the master and the ruler of the universe, the WWF champion, Psycho Sid. And finally, there's a sign up in the corner of the Allstate Arena that reads, 
If Cena wins, we riot. Oh wait, no, sorry that that that's a different that's a different event that happened here. Now, this is the only WrestleMania history not to have been a sellout, at least by their own admission. Uh, out of a total of the eighteen thousand one hundred and ninety-seven who attended, sixteen thousand four hundred and sixty-seven paid, and apparently about fifteen hundred or so. Uh, tickets were given away at the door. And we're not talking about family and friends comps. We're talking about balcony seats that they gave out the day of the event. Yeesh. Now, the WWF definitely was feeling the struggle in 1997. And considering how hot WCW was at this point, I feel this was even more of a dire situation than in 1995. See, in 1995, the business as a whole was down. But in 1997, WCW is thriving at this point. And the NWO is running hot, and they are killing, and I mean killing, Monday Night Raw in the ratings. It's not that the business is down. Wrestling itself is doing really well, but WWF is feeling it. Uh, As we all know, WCW will eventually fuck it up. But to be honest... That's a different series on this feed. So, moving on. Tonight, our commentators for the evening are Screaming Vinnie Mac, good old JR, and the king of Memphis high school dances, Jerry Lawler. A three-man booth for the evening, with more egos than a Van Halen reunion concert. This is going to be a train wreck. Match number one is a fatal four-way elimination tag team match for the number one contendership to the WWF tag team titles. Featuring the Headbangers versus the Godwins versus the New Blackjacks versus Doug Furness and Phil Phil LaFont. Got all that? Good. Let's go. Future Hall of Famer Hillbilly Jim accompanies the Godwins to the ring although they look more like the Wyatt family at this point than anything else. Also, forcing Barry Windham and Bradshaw to wear fake mustaches for their blackjack gimmick tells me why the new blackjacks didn't last very long on TV. Now, once the blackjacks come out to the ring, they immediately start brawling with everyone. And after the chaos, we get a unique situation where each headbanger is tagged in in mice must fight each other due to the rules of the match. The rules, as so adequately explained by good old JR, once you are eliminated, once one person is eliminated, your entire team is eliminated. Also, you can tag anybody at any time, which means you have to, uh, you can tag, you know, partners into the ring and they have to fight each other or they forfeit the match. Now, because it's an elimination fatal four-way, they unfortunately can't just outlaw it and pin each other to win the match. If that happens in this type of format, they'll just simply be eliminated. Now, when Mosh and Thrasher get tagged in, they don't really fight. They they kind of Irish whoop each other and then slam dance into each other. And then, you know, kind of have a little bit of a Mosh pit there. Ugh. God, 1997. Then they tag in Phyllis LaFon, and before he can even get in the ring, they beat him. They they just double-team him and beat him up. Uh, once Barry Windham gets in there, Vince cannot stop talking about the original Blackjacks, and it's really, really annoying. Now, speaking of annoying, Jerry Lawler decides he's going to ask a hypothetical question again. And if you remember the last two episodes... Every time he asks a hypothetical question, he tends to piss off Vince. So let's see what he does here. Let me ask you something. What if Blackjack Wyndham tagged LaFon, and then LaFon came in and beat Furnace? Would they both have to leave? Well, I, I suppose. I guess they would, King. Why would they want to do that? I, I don't think, King, that that's a, a very good hypothetical. <laughs> but then again, anything could happen here in the World Wrestling Federation. What would happen if the King got uh, all riled up, so to speak, and went to the ring and cleaned house? Yeah, now that could happen. It could. Well, hypothetically. 
Soon after, for literally no fucking reason other than to try and establish Bradshaw as a bully, don't worry, he'll have no problem doing that himself later in his career, uh, he literally shoves down the referee outside the ring. For, I, for all fuck knows why. Uh, and the ref DQs the Blackjacks and Furnace on the phone? I'm not sure why they got DQ'd when Bradshaw's the one who put his hands on a ref. But both teams are disqualified. Both teams kind of fight to the back. And now we just have a regular tag match between the Godwins and the Headbangers. So all those special rules were pretty much for nothing. Now the Godwins and the Headbangers then go on to have a pretty physical smash mouth match that actually did hold the crowd's attention, so I'll give them that. Uh, Thrasher misses a top room moonsault, and Henry tags in Phineas, who begins to clean house. Of course, because it's, you know, a Vince Russo-booked event, this breaks down into a melee uh, as Henry Godwin enters the ring and starts brawling with Thrasher in the corner, which allows Mosh to hit Phineas with a top-rope, crotch-in-your-face, Luthez type of press for a three-count. Your winners, after only one pinfall in a fatal four-way elimination match, the Headbangers, who will get a shot at the Tag Champs tomorrow night on Raw. We quickly segue into a short commercial for In Your House next month on April 20th, which seems a tad premature. I mean, at least wait for the second hour for that shit. And then we get our first celebrity of the evening. Making his long-awaited return to WrestleMania, ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only... The Honky Tonk Man is here. And to make things even worse, he'll be joining the commentary team for the next match, making this a four-man booth. For fuck's sake. Match number two, WWF Intercontinental Championship, The Sultan, with the Iron Sheik, and Bob Backlund, versus the blue chipper, Rocky Maivia. Down to the ring comes Rikishi. Uh, but I, I mean the Sultan. He's not. We're not supposed to know he's Rikishi. Uh, and I guess he's built from Iran since Iron Sheik walks out there just waving the Iran flag like crazy. Now, before Rocky even makes his entrance, they are already hyping up the fact that he's a rookie making his WrestleMania debut and he's a young lion and it's Blah, 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 blah. No wonder people got sick of him. They do this shit to themselves. Instead of hyping up the fact that he is the IC champ at such a young age, all they did is bring up his grandfather, the High Chief Peter Maivia. His father, Rocky Johnson. Oh, look, his father's tag team partner, Tony Atlas, happens to be sitting in the crowd next to Captain Lou Albano. <gasps> wow. If Tony Atlas is there, where's Rocky Johnson? We'll get there. I'll give Rocky credit. As green as he is, his offense looks great. His punches are believable. Uh, he's got a lot of fire. Uh, and he starts off the match with some of those punches and some hard-hitting clotheslines and even hits a drop kick. A, I gotta tell you, a drop kick, probably not one of his strong points. Now, Rocky knocks Sultan to the outside after said drop kick. And he tries to go after him, but Sultan slams his arm across the barricade. Honky Tonk Man, at this point, is screaming that rookies don't know what they are doing. And I gotta tell you, I'm already annoyed at his commentary. It's been literally 30 seconds. Now, the Sultan throws Rocky back in the ring, and he locks on a trapezius hold. In 1997, mind you. Now, for any longtime fans of the Rundown podcast, I think you are aware... That we at the Rundown don't really support the trapezius hold. It's kind of a dumb rest hold. I mean, at the very least, do a reverse chin lock. But nevertheless, we get a trapezius hold as the Sultan tries to wear Rocky down. And it goes on for way, way too long. And at one point, the Sultan hits a flying headbutt, which seems to win the title for him. 
But he doesn't even attempt to cover until, like, I don't know, a minute 30 after. He just kind of, you know, plays it up to the fans and then nonchalantly covers Rock with one hand. So, obviously, you know, Rocky kicks out. But then he gets flattened with a belly-to-belly suplex. And then we get another rest hold. Now, it's at this point, Jerry Lawler tells a joke that was so offensive... I just couldn't help myself. You were speaking earlier about the Slammys. You know, at the Slammy Awards, when when Rocky Maivia won that award, he stood there and he thanked his dad. That long, boring speech. It was so boring that even Christopher Reeve got up and walked out. Speaking of boring, so is this match. And we get another rest hold before Rocky finally starts making his comeback. At one point, the Sultan and Rocky clothesline each other which lays them both out until the ref hits about an eight count, and at that point, Rocky just barely gets his arm over the Sultan for a near fall. Now, as the two make their way to their feet, the Sultan tries to tries to attack Rocky, uh, but Rocky pulls a Hogan and starts no-selling his offense. So apparently, Rocky Maivia can hulk up. That's one of his uh, traits in 1997. Uh, he hits the Sultan with a belly-to-belly of his own, and then his classic over-the-back Rocky Maivia DDT before going up to the top turnbuckle. Now, wait a minute, Rock. Please. Well, don't go up to the top turnbuckle. That that can't be a good idea. He kind of hits the Sultan with a flying crossbody, but he also kind of misses him to the point where he almost jumps over him. Uh, and then Rocky tries to go for the cover, but the Sheik is on the apron distracting the wrath. The distraction forces Rocky to immediately jump off of the Sultan and go yell at the ref and the Iron Sheik. Rookie mistake. And then the Sultan gets up and pretty much Rusev kicks Rocky in the skull. Then, in a move that I can only describe as made just for Jerry Lawler, the Sultan hits Rocky with a pile driver and Honky Talk Man starts screaming for the Sultan to break his neck. It's a little unsettling. Rocky kicks out of the pile driver and then gets the Sultan in an inside cradle for the win? What? Seriously? Your winner, and still Intercontinental Champion, Rocky Maivia. After the match, Bob Backlund and Sheik are flipping out to the ref as JR tries to catch a quick post-match interview with Rocky. Uh, Before Rocky can actually cut his first WrestleMania promo, however, the Sultan attacks him and beats him down with the icy title belt. Tosses Rock into the ring, where the Iron Sheik literally kicks him a hole twice before Sultan hits Rocky with a top rope splash. And it's at this point that Sheik locks Rocky into the dreaded camel clutch. Oh no, is this the demise of our hero? Of course not, because here comes Rocky Johnson out of the crowd to beat up the Sultan. Uh, He gets in the ring. He starts throwing his trademark crazy Rocky Johnson punches. He gets the upper hand, but then Sultan beats him down using the Iranian flag. And then they attempt to lock Rocky Johnson in the camel clutch. But Rocky Maivia gets back up to his feet, hits the Sultan with one right hand, to which the Sultan then falls out of the ring and the heels retreat. Young Rocky and old Rocky take turns beating up the Iron Sheik because he was the only one left in the ring. And then eventually they throw him out too. Now I will say that the crowd was behind the Rockies at this point. But that white meat babyface shtick in 1997, that's only going to take you so far. We're already almost a year into the cool heels of the NWO. And there's another guy on this on this WrestleMania that will uh, gain a lot of fanfare being kind of a cool heel. So being that blue chipper, white meat baby face, I don't think it's going to work. Rocky is just going to have to find something else to do. We go backstage to Todd Penningale. Whoa. And he is with the special guest referee for the submits match between Brett the Hitman Hard and Stone Cold Steve Austin. That man is the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock. 
Although in his first meeting interview, he sounds anything but. Ken, maybe you can tell us exactly what happened with Billy Gunn. Well, I'll tell you, you know, he kind of challenged me outside the ring, so I stepped in right here, went behind an arm lock here. It's a shoulder lock, reverse, and just uh, put a little bit on there. I wasn't trying to hurt him, but I wanted him to know who I was, you know, so I just applied a little pressure and made him squeal. Shamrock then promises us that during tonight's match, he will not be intimidated. More backstage bullshit, as Doc Pretty Stupid Hendrix is with Triple H in China. Triple H is also not good at promos at this point, and we quickly go to our next match. Match number three, Triple H with China versus Goldust with Marlena. Now, Goldust at this point has turned face and is not doing half of the controversial shit he was doing as a heel, and although that might appear good on paper, he really just comes off as a watered-down version of himself as a babyface. Not to mention, this match is really built around China uh, getting her hands on Marlena, more so than the actual feud between Triple H and Goldust. Now, Triple H has deviated slightly from his blue blood persona at this point, and seems to have a slightly more edgier character, especially with China by his side. But again, it's early 97, so this is still only slightly. Goldust, for whatever reason, probably because they had a very large pyro budget, actually gets fireworks during his entrance. Also proving this was a different time and era, Marlena comes to the ring smoking a cigar. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, the Godfather would smoke a cigar. Well, no, Godfather would have one in his hand and wave it around. He wasn't actually smoking and blowing O's on the way to the ring, at least not that I can recall. And still, it's just not something you'd see on TV today. Now, Goldust does start off the match, you know, some nice fire. At one point, Helmsley gets his arm tied up in the ropes, and he gets his arms tied up in the ropes on the outside of the ring. Like, in other words, on the on the apron. Now, if this was last year's Goldust, this scene might get kind of rapey. But for now, Goldust just punches him in his nose while the commentators point out what an easy target Triple H's nose is. Now, Goldust actually clotheslines Helmsley back into the ring, which is a bit of a rarity. And much like he does last year, Goldust tries to go to the top turnbuckle, and just like last year, he gets caught. Uh, but Helmsley, instead of slamming Goldust off the top turnbuckle to the mat, he shoves Goldust from the top turnbuckle to the outside, and Goldust hits his face on the apron. Ouch. Triple H then starts taking it to Goldust. Helmsley stomps the shit out of Goldust. And China just stares there. With her arms folded. Blank expression. For some reason, JR and Vince feel the need to make fun of China, saying she looks like a horse and a gorilla and everything else you'd expect from your babyface commentators to call a muscular woman in 1997. But at least they've moved on from calling Goldust a fruitcake, so I guess that's an improvement from last year. Uh, Goldust finally turns the tide, and with all things, a rear view, like Naomi's finisher to the chest of Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Goldust goes for the curtain call, but is distracted by China, who has cornered Marlena. It's the first time she's moved. It's, she walked right up to Marlena and just kind of, I'm gonna get you. Now, Goldust picks up Marlena and lifts her onto the apron and starts yelling at China to back off. This allows Helmsley to knee Goldust in the back, sending Marlena flying into China's arms who then ragdolls the shit out of Marlena, while Goldust gets pedigreed for his troubles. One, two, three. Ain't nobody kicking out of this pedigree, or getting up from this pedigree, rather, at this WrestleMania. Your winner, Triple H. They leave the ring as both Goldust and Marlena are laid out, Okay. And that's it. They could have just went to the next segment or went backstage right there. But instead, Goldust crawls over to Marlena and then lifts her up in his arms. Only to drop to his knees and let out an emotional cry because, you know, acting! He then carries her to the back as we get a shot 
of Shawn Michaels trying to talk to fans on America Online. Now, I posted a picture of Michaels doing this on my Twitter. And feel free to meme the shit out of him trying to figure out how to use a laptop because it is pretty fucking funny. We are told that it's Vader time and we go to the Fink for our next match. Match number four, WWF Tag Team Championship. Vader and Mankind versus Bulldog and Owen. So not only does Vader get stuck in yet another tag match at WrestleMania, but Mankind, who made his debut the night after last year's WrestleMania and spent the summer absolutely tearing shit up with The Undertaker, also gets stuck in a makeshift tag team. It's really weird, and I don't understand why they do it, but they still do it today. You get a guy, he has like a great storyline, he has all this momentum throughout the summer, even throughout the fall, and then come WrestleMania time, they have they've burned all their fucking gas on him and decide, oh, we got nothing for him, just stick him in a tag team. <laughs> we still see it today, and I still don't understand it. Uh, to top it off, Neither Vader nor Mankind really means shit to the story they're trying to tell us. The main point of this story is that Owen Hart and the British Bulldog are starting to have a riff. And they they hammer home that point by bringing up the fact that Bulldog became the inaugural European champion by beating Owen Hart in the finals of that tournament. A tournament which apparently was held in Europe and culminated... Uh, with the championship match in Germany. So, we do get our first look at the brand new European Championship. Uh, As him and Owen walk down to the ring, however, Jim Ross tries to stop them and tries to stir it up, asking the champs, who's the leader of this team? Which, of course, they both answer separately. I am! I'm the leader! Now, once again, stop me if you heard this before, Owen is the entertaining part of this act. As he comes to the ring carrying two Slammies, both of which he didn't actually win. He just, like, showed up at the Slammies and, like, took. And then, to make things even better, on his tights it says Slammy Award winning. (laughs) Owen's great. I swear, Owen, Owen is great. And I can't watch this stuff enough when he comes, when he does, you know, pretty much anything in his shtick. But I, I do like this. This whole two slammy award winning Owen Hart. Now Owen starts things off with Vader. And Vader pummels Owen for the first portion of the match until Bulldog comes in to beat on Mankind. Nice reaction for the new European champion. Those are some good pops here. Uh, He showcases his power, including a vertical suplex to Vader, which I will say was pretty impressive. Uh, However, Vader would slow down Bulldog's momentum. Uh, hitting him in the back of the head with Paul Bear's urn. Urn? Urn, you say? Yes, that's correct. Because when Paul Bear turned on The Undertaker in 1996 and became Mankind's manager, he took the urn with him. Because even if it doesn't give Mankind special powers, hey, at least it's a good foreign object. Owen finally gets tagged in and nails Vader with a missile dropkick. Owen also hits Vader with a flying crossbody and gets a two count. Owen tries a third aerial assault, but Vader swats him out of the sky. Vader and Mankind then brutalize Owen on the outside, including a diving elbow from Mankind onto Owen, as Owen is across Vader's knee in a backbaker position. Uh, Vader continues to beat on Owen until finally Owen hits an enziguri. This allows Owen enough time to tag in Bulldog. Bulldog comes in, you know, typical House of Fire. Throws Mankind pretty much face-first into the turnbuckle. But somehow Mankind then locks him in the mandible claw. Now Vader and Owen then enter the ring and they start brawling. And Owen knocks Vader into Mankind. So Mankind and Bulldog fall out of the ring. However, Mankind has the claw on Bulldog the whole time. They literally tumble out of the ring. And Mankind never lets go of the Mandible Claw. Which unfortunately leads to the ref counting both of them out. Your winner is no winner, as this tag team match ends in a double countout. Now, Mankind refuses to let go of the Mandible Claw, regardless of how many times the timekeeper rings the bell. 
Uh, he's got that thing locked in, and he will not let go of it. Finally, Vader is the one who pretty much gets mankind off of him. Uh, and then they leave. And I'll say this. They did a good job of portraying Vader and mankind as deranged, uncontrollable monsters. As well as showcasing the athletic ability of Owen Hart and the Bulldog. Although, you know, a double countout at a WrestleMania, I'm never a fan. I'm never going to be a fan of that. It's just, you know what? You can do that nine times out of ten on any other show in the year. Why do you have to do it at WrestleMania for? Next up, we get a nice hype video for Austin and Bret Hart. Now, this video package proves what I'm about to tell you about this feud that a lot of people will claim this match to be the greatest double turn in wrestling history. And I'm here to tell you that as good as it was, what we saw at WrestleMania 13 was really just the finishing touches of a beautiful story these two told over the past six months. Austin's popularity had been soaring since King of the Ring, and Brett has been absolutely phenomenal portraying a frustrated, whiny, fed-up, you know, guy who, who's sick of it all. So all these seeds and all the story they've told leading up to their match was really, you know, it wasn't like a double turn in one night. This was a long, drawn-out story that culminated at WrestleMania 13. But I think a lot a lot of times you don't hear about the groundwork these two put in and uh it needs to be it needs to be told because it just sets this up so fucking beautifully we go to the ring and howard finkel introduces us to our special guest referee ken shamrock now shamrock admittedly looks ripped to shreds as he's wearing one of vince mcmahon's special sleeveless referee shirts and then Austin's music hits, and we see him stomping around backstage. Huge reaction to the sight of Stone Cold Steve Austin, even for early 1997. But as Stone Cold approaches the grill position, we change the camera to the entranceway, showing a glass covering across the entranceway that says Austin 316. And you guessed it, as Austin makes his way to the entrance... That glass shatters. Great visual. And Austin comes stomping out. There are so many Austin fans in the crowd, it's really hard to tell he's not officially a face yet. Then again, Austin was a little bit of a different breed for this era. Even as a face, he would pretty much act like a heel and just not give a fuck and do whatever the fuck he wanted anyway. Then comes Bret Hart, and I will say he gets a mixed to decent reaction. Hell, they even give Brett some pre-match fireworks above his entrance. I would say a very John Cena-ish reaction for Brett. Uh, but you know what? I'll give Brett his credit. He definitely got a lot of cheers. More than he would get later in the night. Now, at this point, Vince is complaining on commentary because Brett pushed him down a couple weeks ago on Raw. And during this entirety of the match, Vince is 100% against Bret Hart. It's weird because Vince has never been a heel commentator. And Brett is still kind of a face. But uh, yeah, he's pretty much ripping Bret Hart the whole match. Shades of what to, would come later, I guess. Now, Austin gets this thing started off pretty hot and heavy as he just cracks Brett right in the face and then starts laying punches into him on the ground. They roll around for a while, they pummel each other to the outside, and Brett sends Austin face first into the post. But Austin then crotches Brett on the guardrail before clotheslining him into the crowd. They fight through the crowd, and Shamrock follows them, which is a really good visual. Uh, and a really good job here portraying the hatred between these two in the early going. Everything looks stiff. Everything looks passion-filled. Uh, everything looks like it fucking hurts, which is exactly what you want in a blood feud like this. Now, they eventually fight back to ringside, and Austin whips Brett's shoulder first into the steel steps. They finally end up back in the ring, and Brett levels Austin with a swinging neckbreaker. Brett then starts working on Austin's knee, which is an easy target because at this point he even still has the knee brace. Out of nowhere, and I shit you not, out of fucking nowhere, Austin hits a stunner. But there's no pinfalls. There's no pinfalls in the match, 
And before Austin can even capitalize, Brett then kicks his leg out of his leg. Brett locks Austin in the figure four around the ring post, and the crowd goes nuts because they know that Brett doesn't have to break this hold like he usually does. No standing five count here. No, no, no. Ken Shamrock is simply asking if Steve Austin wants to quit. Uh, Austin does not quit, however, and he does manage to squirm his way out. So Brett grabs a steel chair, tosses Austin back into the ring, and attempts to pilmanize Austin's ankle. However, as soon as Austin gets, as soon as Brett gets to the top rope, Austin jumps up, takes the chair off his leg, and clocks Brett right across the back of the head with the chair. Austin, essentially a one leg on this point, starts to beat the holy hell out of Bret Hart with the steel chair. Austin then attempts his first submission of the match, and he locks Bret in a modified octopus stretch submission. Camera goes over to Stu Hart, and we get a concerned look on Stu Hart's face. But then again, he might just have gas. Austin then tries a Boston Crab right in the middle of the ring, and is sitting back on it pretty well. Uh, but Brett is able to get to the ropes. I know it's a submission match, but for some reason, Shamrock still makes Brett break the hold. Austin then tries to lock Brett in the sharpshooter, which I thought was a nice touch, but Brett pokes him in the eye to avoid it. Now, it's at this point that Austin throws Brett outside, and this is a very important spot in this match. See, Austin tries to whip Brett into the barricade. And Brett reverses it, and Austin lands head first on the barricade. Why is this so important? Because it's at this point when Austin gets up, and we see he is busted wide open. Now, this is a fantastic job by Brett and Austin, making this look like an accident. Uh, Vince had a very strict no-color policy, and you can get fined very heavily for shit like that. But Brett and Austin agreed to before the match that this needed blood and they did it and it's very hard to tell it does look like austin caught himself coming down on the guardrail so that maybe it was hard way obviously years later brett and austin have admitted that they planned the whole spot out but and you could tell on commentary vince was pissed uh and to the point where he actually says they might have to stop the match yeah okay stop the match in chicago see what happens now, as Austin's bleeding all over the place, Brett continues to hammer away on Austin's skull. And then to make it worse, Brett just lays into Austin's knee with the chair. Brett tries to hook the sharpshooter, but Austin rakes his eyes to stop Brett for now. By the way, Austin's blood is literally all over the mat. Quite the gruesome sight. Austin momentarily seizes the advantage with a straight kick to the junk. He then gives him the double middle finger mud hold stomp before sending Brett up on the top turnbuckle. And he nails a huge superplex off the, tur- off the top rope. Austin, ever the resourceful, then grabs an extension cord and tries to choke Brett out. Brett, to his credit, reaches the ring bell and nails Austin to break Austin's grip. Finally... Probably a couple pints of bud later. Brett locks Austin in the sharpshooter in the middle of the ring. And blood pours out of Austin's head as he refuses to give up. This would go on to become one of the most iconic images in the Attitude Era. Because not only would Stone Cold Steve Austin refuse to give up. He is literally laying in a pool of his own blood. But screaming desperately to try to get out of the sharpshooter. And at one point, Austin uses his arms and powers out and almost breaks the hold. Like Brett goes down, but then Brett just locks it right back in. This proves too much as Stone Cold Steve Austin finally passes out. Your winner, Brett the Hitman Hart. But your real winner, Stone Cold Steve Austin. That guy became a legend in this match. After the match, Brett tries to continue to attack Austin. And Shamrock is forced to physically remove Brett. And he pretty much belly suplexes him off of Brett. Now, Brett immediately gets up and 
Shamrock looks like he's ready to go. But Brett thinks better of it, and he leaves. And as he leaves, he starts flipping off people in the crowd in the process. Classy. The commentators put over the fact that Austin never gave up. Vince puts over the fact that Austin didn't lose the match, his body just gave up on him. Austin drags himself to his feet, but when Mike Yoda tries to help him up, he gets a stunner for his troubles. I don't know where the fuck Yoda came from, I think they just sent officials down to ringside to try to help Austin, but that was the first and last one that tried to help him tonight. A large... Austin chant breaks out throughout the arena as Austin painfully makes his way backstage on his own. In the many years the rundown has been on the air, we've always discussed the moment that a guy was made. And I gotta tell you, Austin's WWF career up to this point, it was okay. Obviously the Austin 316 promo made people kind of look in his direction. But this match, in this moment, and the way they booked this, and the way everything played out, I think this cemented him as a top guy in the WWF. Now, it wouldn't be another year until Austin would be cemented as the guy at WrestleMania 14, but you can always look back at this match and be like, that's the one. That's his... You know, his moment where he proved that he was one of the top guys in this business for that time period. And it's funny because as talked about before as well, they didn't they didn't really want to put the rocket on Austin. Even after 13, they waited a whole year before finally putting the rocket on him. But And you could, you know, chalk that up to a number of things from when Owen broke his neck at SummerSlam. So this, that, and the other thing. I mean, there was a lot of things that happened between this WrestleMania and next year, but uh, Austin was red hot coming out of this match. So it might have made more sense to strike while the iron was hot. Obviously, he developed his character very nicely in the following year. But man, if you check out anything from this WrestleMania, definitely make sure it's this match. Unfortunately, we do have to move on because there are still two matches left on the card, which is a shame for anybody else left on the card because now you have to follow that. Uh, Todd Pettengill is with the Nation of Domination, and I will first say this. Farouk looks jacked. Probably some of the best shape that Ron Simmons has been in in his WWF career is right at this point. And I gotta say also, the Nation's a very imposing force to see. You just got like so many guys, not just Crush and Savio Vega, who were the actual wrestlers in the Nation, but they're just surrounded by uh, a lot of people. That just make it more imposing. Now, Todd Pennegale says that they brought everything but the kitchen sink. To which Farouk says, how do you know I didn't bring the kitchen sink? <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. Farouk also promises that he brought everything for tonight, including the thugs. We go to the ring for match number six, the Nation of Domination. Versus Ahmed Johnson with his partners, Chicago's own Legion of Dune, in... A Chicago street fight. Good old-fashioned Chicago street fight. Now, to start, allow me to say the Nation are portrayed as this very powerful, militant group, rumored to loosely be based on the Black Panthers and the Nation of Islam. They kind of had a little mix of both. There's probably about 10 or 12 of them in the ring. I mean, you know Crush, you know Savio Vega, you know Farouk. Uh, D'Lo Brown is there. Clarence Mason, who was essentially their manager, was there. There's a few other people there, and there's also the two hype men known as PG-13, J.C. Ice and Wolfie D. They all do the black power salute, which is uh, a little weird, because they're not all black, but whatever. Now, during this entrance, we get a special announcement from Vince McMahon. WrestleMania, ladies and gentlemen. And by the way, we are pleased to announce that WrestleMania will emanate next year from Boston, Massachusetts. Yes, people all over the world make their plans for this once-of-the-year event. WrestleMania 14, March 29, 1998, from the Fleet Center in Boston, Massachusetts. And tickets are not on sale. Please do not attempt to... uh, 
buy tickets. They are not available as we speak. But remember, folks, tickets are not on sale. Don't you dare try to buy tickets. Yet. Obviously, very loud reaction for the hometown Legion of Doom, and it's nice to see that Ahmed Johnson dressed the part. He comes out sporting some spiked shoulder pads. And not only do they bring a 2x4, but just for comedic effect, they also bring the kitchen sink. Which seems like a nice sink. It's a shame. It's going to get all busted up. We instantly devolve into an all-out brawl right away. And LOD even beat up D'Lo and Clarence Mason. This was within like the first 30 seconds. It's at this point that we get a nice little cameo. As the brawl starts spilling to the outside. Ladies and gentlemen, making his first and most likely only appearance on this podcast, I present to you a very young, very, very young, Colt Cabana, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. There are YouTube videos about this. Colt Cabana in the IOA, on the guardrail, uh, as the fight spills towards where he's sitting. He gets up. And pats Hawk on the back and then pretends to throw fake punches at Hawk and I believe that's Savio Vega. Obviously, uh, Colt was probably 18 at this point. Maybe even, you know, maybe uh, 17, 18. Uh, and it is funny and it is blatantly Colt Cabana. If you do go back and see that, uh, if you do go back and watch it, you can blatantly see it. He's wearing an ECFNW shirt, which is even better. Now, as we move on through the match, this match is fucking complete chaos. There's a lot of trash can shots. There's a 2 by 4 that tries to distract us from a botched pile diver attempt by Animal onto Farouk through a ringside table. I mean, he lifted him up in a pile drive position, but then they both kind of just gently fell off to the side. But let's get weird, and let's get a fire extinguisher, and let's shoot that shit into the air ringside, because I'm sure the fans appreciate breathing that in for a few moments. So in 1997, the WWF decides to put on an all-out street fight with all types of weapons, including street signs, and garbage cans, and 2 by 4s And you know, I feel like there's only one thing missing from this match. If only. Fire extinguisher goes off again as JR and Lawler literally struggle to breathe. Vince no-sells it, but you know that Vince could not have been happy about having to breathe that shit in. But he's Vince McMahon, so he ain't gonna cough. And then if this match couldn't get any worse, things get downright dark. Clarence Mason tries to choke Ahmed Johnson with the help of D'Lo Brown, Using a a noose, ladies and gentlemen. A legit fucking noose. I shit you not. Also, thank you, Kevin Dunn, for the close-up on Ahmed Johnson's face while he's in the noose. I'm sure people watching at home will appreciate that visual. But, but it's okay, because Hawk gets put in the noose for about 10 seconds, so that makes everything alright, right? Right? Ugh. Back on the outside, we get the fire extinguisher for the third time tonight. Fucking enough. Please. Enough already. Eventually, Crush gets leveled with a doomsday device. And then Ahmed hits him with a 2x4. Kind of using it like a clothesline. And then the pinfall. And that's it. Your winners, LOD and Ahmed Johnson. Now, if this match seemed kind of all over the place in my recap, it's because it was. And from bell to bell, probably about seven, eight minutes. It's really fucked up. Now, the music for LOD starts playing for about two seconds before the rest of the nation jumps in and tries to attack him again. But, obviously, LOD and Ahmed get the upper hand. And then a double doomsday device to the White Rappers PG-13 and the nation's night for good. It was a cool visual, so kudos to them for that. We get another commercial for In Your House on April 20th as we get ready for our main event of the evening. It's at this point we hear the music of HBK Shawn Michaels. 
Michaels comes out and literally high fives every single fan that he can reach everywhere from the entranceway throughout the entire ringside area. Literally about 10 minutes of Michaels entrance as the quote unquote injured and recovering Shawn Michaels takes his seat to join us for commentary. Now, for anybody who's not aware, I am a huge Shawn Michaels fan. I always have been. Except for this particular point in his career. See, Shawn decided to relinquish the title about a month before WrestleMania, saying he had to go find his smile, and he also needed to get knee surgery. Never disclosed exactly what was wrong with his knee. A lot of people have speculated it was just a minor knee scope or something of that nature. However, he returns to in-ring action so soon after WrestleMania that a lot of people had difficulty believing Michael's story. In fact, a lot of people, including myself, believe Michaels didn't want to drop the belt back to Brett because that was the original plan was that Brett versus Sean 2 would headline WrestleMania 13, this time with Brett winning. How convenient it was for Sean to not want to do that and to play hurt. But what I don't understand is all the extravaganza surrounding Michaels when he's not the one fighting tonight. When I tell you that he got a 10-minute entrance, I'm not lying. Go back and look at it. So not only are you allowing this guy to do things like that, but you're pretty much keeping the spotlight on him, which doesn't seem fair to Taker or Sid. Done talking about it. And Michaels, as a guest commentator, is decently funny. Although he might be the first guest commentator in the history of the WWF to get pyro. Just saying. We finally get our WrestleMania close-up of Vlad the Superfan, which means it's time for your main event. WWF Championship match. Psycho Sid defends against The Undertaker. Now, Taker comes out in gear that is a throwback to his original 90s gear, which I thought was a nice touch. Sid comes out to an insanely large pop, which is funny because he's not supposed to be cheer. He's supposed to be a bad guy. And there's still a lot of Taker fans in the crowd, but people just like Sid. Uh, one of the reasons I can think of that people do like Sid is Sid's in-ring pyro is literally a big, giant, sparkly Sid, S-I-D, in huge letters perched behind him while he holds up the WWF title. Nowadays, the champion doesn't even get so much as a lighting spe- a special lighting treatment. Although, how funny it would be if... They did this for Miz, and it just said M-I-Z in big sparkly letters every time he came out. I'd pop. Now the bell rings, but before we can get started, out comes Bret Hart. Well, wait a minute, Bret. We just saw you in a match with Steve Austin. What the hell are you doing here? Well, Bret demands a microphone, and he's going to tell us why he's here. Yo, first of all... I'm so scared! But as for you, I just want you to know, when you slam that door on my head, you slam the door on our friendship, and from here on in, it's a new set of rules between you and me. Oh my, I can't remember the last time Brett was anybody's friend. And you, (laughs) you know, and I know, and every single person in this building, championship belt belongs to me and you are a fraud well it looks like Brett that belt never belonged to you and you know it and I know it and every single person in this building whether you're here or outside in TV land you all know that I am the best there is the best there was and the best there ever will be Match. 
Sid doesn't take too kindly to Brett's words, and as you heard, he cracks Brett in the face and power bombs the shit out of him, which is pretty funny. Sid then tells Brett to hop along, crybaby, before promising to kick Brett's ass after he kicks Taker's ass. Taker doesn't appreciate that, and he attacks Sid. We get an old school to start, but then Sid locks him in a bear hug, which is a great way to start the match. A rest hold. And then Sid finally clotheslines Taker over the top rope and then kicks him up and over the Spanish announce table. As they brawl on the outside, Vince tells us we have just been told that earlier today, both Sid and Taker agreed to make this a no-DQ match. Changing the rules as we go along, huh, Vince? Yeah, I'm not surprised. Sid pummels Undertaker in the ring until Taker sends him back outside and whips him over the guardrail. Then they continue to fight around the ring, fight a little bit in the crowd, fight around the ring, and then they get back in the ring, and we get another rest hold. I'll tell you right now, this match has lost the crowd. Between Austin and Brett, and all the chaos that happened in the street fight, crowd's pretty dead. Double big boot lays out both guys, and the crowd finally starts to wake up at this point. Taker eventually goes for the tombstone, but Sid reverses it and tombstones Taker, and that the crowd reacted for pretty huge. Now, surprisingly enough, Sid gets a two and a half count, so he dumps Taker to the outside, goes out after him, Taker sees the advantage, throws him into the stairs, they make their way back in the ring, and Taker hits him with a chokeslam for a two count. Sid then ducks a flying clothesline and sets up Taker for a powerbomb. But not before Bret Hart can run down to the ring and cause a distraction. Sid turns his attention to Bret Hart, punches him off the apron, and when he turns around, Taker lifts up Sid and delivers the tombstone. One, two, three. New champ. Your winner. The Undertaker! It seems a little bit anticlimactic, given the fact that this match centered just as much around Brett and Sean as it did around Sid and Taker. Speaking of which, Sid goes to the back to chase after Brett as Taker celebrates in the ring and poses with the WWF title. With a tear sloppily drawn on his right cheek like some bad rap music video, The Undertaker has once again become the WWF Champion. The thunder, the lightning, the darkness all surround the ring as we go off the air. This WrestleMania was a very interesting WrestleMania in the sense that there were some decent matches. I thought they did some good storytelling. And obviously, match of the night for me was Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Bret Hart. However, I just felt like it missed the mark in a lot of different ways. It was great seeing Taker win the title, but this night barely seemed about him. Also, I felt like people were weirdly placed on the card. You know, Mankind, after the year he had, probably shouldn't have been tagging with Vader. Owen and Bulldog, if they were going to break up, just let them fucking fight each other. And as far as the street fight goes, I think it was something you do literally because you're in Chicago. It worked, but it was short, and it was sloppy, and it's so difficult with that many bodies in the ring at one time. However, the worst match of the night for me was the Fatal 4-Way Elimination Tag Match. Not even for the tag team titles, just for a shot at the tag team titles. The fact that two teams were eliminated off of a double DQ slash double countout within the first five minutes, made no sense. Even for 1997. However, as you guys know, I had a blast, because I love going back and watching WrestleMania. Everybody, enjoy WrestleMania this year. I I certainly will be watching it. Uh, The card seems stacked. Follow us on Twitter, at WrestleManiaSale. Follow the show, The Rundown, at Rundown Podcast. If you're a fan of horror, check out the Slasher Sanitarium and give them a follow at Slasher Podcast. And follow our friend 
Henry Hugeplex, the suplex throwing human duplex, at the Raw Attitude Podcast. I think it's Raw Attitude Podcast. I don't think there's any the. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining me. Next time, it is WrestleMania 14 with special guest Mike Tyson. It's going to be on WrestleMania 14. It's not going to be on this show. That would cost me way too much money. But I will see you guys next time.